0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our Sabbath School From Home podcast. We're so glad that you could be here with us. My name's Cameron. I'm so glad to be in this discussion, partly because I've had a very difficult week and I'm enjoying this little bit of community with Ken and Locke and Luke and with you. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, g'day. I'm Ken. I understand what you mean about a difficult week, Cameron. Uh, So difficult that uh, today I gave up on my... uh diet and uh, just decided I was going to comfort eat.
2: Yeah, hi, I'm Lachlan, and although in society at large our coronavirus social restrictions and workplace restrictions are easing, the Castle Hill Church that I attend in Sydney is a large enough community that it looks as if it will be restricted in its ability to operate in-person gatherings for at least a number of weeks yet to come. So I'm especially enjoying this opportunity for some community through this podcast.
3: Uh, I'm Luke. Um, I've actually had a rather good week, uh, yet I'm still very glad to be here
0: and uh, to participate in this discussion. Our discussion this week is a continuation of our discussion last week on Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. To kick us off, I'm going to replay the recording we took last week of the reading of the two Psalms, but I've done something a little bit different. What I've done is interspersed Lachlan's reading of Psalm 22 with my reading of Psalm 23. Just to uh, accentuate some of the contrasts between these two psalms.
2: My God, my God, why have you forsaken
0: me? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want.
2: Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest.
0: He makes me lie down in green pastures.
2: Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame.
0: He leads me beside quiet waters, he restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake.
2: But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him.
0: Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death.
2: Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help.
0: I will fear no evil, for you are with me.
2: Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust
0: of death. Your rod... And your staff, they comfort me.
2: For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save
0: me from the mouth of the lion. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies.
2: You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him.
0: You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows.
2: From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations.
0: Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life.
2: All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive
0: and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.
2: Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it.
0: Now that we have those uh, psalms a little fresher in our minds, let's jump back to the discussion from last week. If you haven't heard last week's episode, then I'd encourage you to to listen to it first. A lot of the comments made in this week's discussion refer to our discussion from last week. Where we left off was uh, musings on what it meant to live a life of faith. Both the disciples and the Pharisees were in error about what the Messiah, what the mission of the Messiah would be. They expected a, a military leader and this discussion grew out of observations that both Psalm 22 and Psalm 23... messianic in nature they inform us about the person of christ in his mission in different ways and uh, we noted that the disciples were believed in believed in a military leader and were willing to put themselves on the line they they gave up their jobs they followed christ they expected a messiah and were willing to risk themselves to follow him the pharisees expected a messiah uh, but they were frightened that christ would start a rebellion and that the the Romans would come and take away the temple from them. They didn't really want the Messiah that they believed in. And when push came to shove, when Christ was there working miraculous deeds in front of their eyes, they didn't want to risk it. They weren't willing to step out and accept even the Messiah that they believed in. And what seems to separate the church leaders from what would become the leaders of the, of the new Christian movement is that the disciples... Were willing to take a risk and the Pharisees weren't. The disciples were willing to act on their beliefs and the Pharisees weren't weren't willing to accept even the Messiah that they believed in. With that in mind let's jump back to our discussion from last week. Luke's going to start us off with more musings on what it means to be a person of faith.
3: Um, well you're you talking about faith and I was I was raised um, to to hold the belief, and I think it's a very common belief, that strong faith means an ironclad certainty of doctrine. I think that's that's a very common view that people within our church and most churches, and also people without churches, I think that's the idea they have of faith. Faith means believing this thing, this this set of rules or set of of what have you, regardless of anything else, uh, regardless of any evidence presented um, in opposition to it, uh, regardless of it, of it even making internal sense, not singling out any particular doctrine. Uh, just saying that that's the concept of faith that everyone thinks of. But what you're describing with the disciples there is a type of faith where they are factually wrong. Their doctrine is wrong, but their faith which is in Jesus is untroubled.
0: yeah the, the they're f- right in, 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 in the most important sense they're right. yeah they're, even though doctrinally they're wrong.
3: They have a faith that does not require them to be correct on everything. and it is a faith that endures even even when you know their, their doctrine of Jesus as this sort of earthly warrior who's going to overthrow the Romans, was proven wrong, and it was devastating for them. And then, through faith, they accepted a new and better doctrine after the resurrection.
0: I like that idea, Luke. It was. I liked it. it. It it was.
3: You know, if if they had, if if Jesus had died, you know, and doubting Thomas comes close to this. If Jesus has died, it would have been very easy. If your faith was in the doctrine of Jesus as a warrior to overthrow the Romans. That would have been the point to lose faith and to give up and to go away and to have nothing more to do with these, these fools who believed in Jesus.
1: And indeed, um, that's what those who were walking on the road to Emmaus thought. Uh, they said, we thought he was the Messiah. Um, so they'd given up on that thought that he was the Messiah.
0: But they're pleased to be corrected, can My word. <laughs> I, I mean I hope that I mean the honest truth is I is not very often that I'm pleased to be corrected uh, you know maybe that's something we should aspire to more personally and, and also as a denomination certainly I think that there needs to be a sharper distinction between a life of faith and and an understanding of a, you know a list of statements we have to assent to
2: you know as this as this is as the conversation has gone this way i, I... I also think you've expressed it really well, Luke. And I actually think there's an interesting way to tie Psalm 22 back into this because Psalm 22, it was, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's quoted by Jesus on the cross in the gospels. But don't you think it could also be a really interesting exploration of the kind of state of mind you, you might've been in as a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus over that first Easter weekend. You know, I've, God, I've had a really clear picture of your leading and your presence, and it's been utterly upended. Why are you so far away? I'm calling out. I'm not finding any answers. I am, I am being scorned by people and despised. Everyone who sees me is mocking me. Yet you are holy. Verse 3. Verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. Even though there's bulls surrounding me and encompassing me, and my whole picture of my life and of the future and everything is evaporated, and I'm I'm feeling like I've melted wax and and I'm I'm all dried up. Yet, there's this return to to a to a, a faith of a kind that is deeper than just an understanding of the details of how everything goes together, in Psalm 22, and there's there's a theme of interspersed with those. Statements of despair, really. There is this, well, even though that's what I'm seeing, I actually have a faith of a kind that is causing me to remember things that are absolutely not resonant with my current experience and to dwell on them a little bit. And by the time you get to the end of the psalm, I like what came up in one of our earlier ideas looking at this end of Psalm 22. It's almost as if the author is saying, Look, I'm not even sure I'm ever going to understand this. It to me it looks it looks very difficult, but I'm having a faith that future generations will see in this story a thing that proclaims God's righteousness.
0: It also brings to mind, Locke, uh the distinctions we were making earlier about Christ as as prophet and priest. That in the Old Testament there were these two roles, and and the priests were the. The mediators of the, of the formal worship ceremonies, they held positions of influence, and the prophets were called to keep them to account. But there, there is, of course, another voice in the Old Testament, which is the voice of the psalmist. And the voice of the psalmist seems to have a different role. This idea that the disciples' faith, even though they had many errors of doctrine, was able to withstand the disappointment of, of the crucifixion, which must have been appalling. And they felt it very keenly, but they were able to come through it. it seems to speak to the role of the psalmist. Mm. So, you know, the priests, the priests and the prophets are both, in a sense, in their own way, trying to paint a picture of the way things ought to be. And the voice of the psalmist stands up and just says how things actually are. He speaks
3: to our uh, day-to-day existence as if we have any other kind of existence.
0: <laughs> yes, and, and, and we need then the different Psalms with the, with the different tones.
2: I think it's a substantial challenge, isn't it? So many of us as Christians hope for a Psalms 23 kind of life. Psalm 22 experiences are, are very, very real, do not indicate that we are just low in faith,
0: there are some aspects in which Psalm 22 is not messianic, and I'm thinking of verse 24. It says that God has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. I think of, of Christ's prayer in Gethsemane. This this is one part of Psalm 22 which was not fulfilled. And, and of course, the, the, the sad and terrible and beautiful irony is that it it was Christ's rejection that made verse 24 possible for us, that God might mm. not you know despise or disdain our suffering or hide his face from us, and that in some sense Christ even sort of gave up the comforting parts of Psalm 22, which which are not very comforting, um, but they, he didn't even get that much. Even though Psalm 23 is, is not universally positive, like you said we all hope for Psalm 23 life, I think that there's a contrast between the last half of verse 3 and verse 4 in Psalm 23. Sorry, verse 2. It says, God says uh, that he leads us beside the quiet waters, which is nice. And then in verse 4 it says, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it, surely those two are, are mutually exclusive.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going back to verse 24 of Psalm 22, and I'm reminded of... Uh, You say that it's not messianic because that wasn't fulfilled uh, for Jesus, at least in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, But I wonder whether or not it really was in the end uh, fulfilled, albeit not uh, until after the cross, because uh, I'm reminded of uh, another messianic piece of scripture, um, uh, the Isaiah, Is uh, is it 53? The... Uh, suffering servant is spoken about, which is taken again to be a messianic prophecy. And and he talks about uh, how he saw the suffering of his soul, the travail of his soul, and was satisfied. So in the end, notwithstanding uh, the affliction, uh, God did not hide his face, but heard him uh, and fulfilled the deeper uh, desire than the desire to avoid suffering and fulfill the purpose uh, behind that suffering.
2: So that's a really interesting idea, Ken, because it does get back to this idea of what is the context and when do you get to say, aha, now I I see it and I understand it better. And I- indeed, I, um, you know, right at the start of this exploration I commented that in my ears Psalm 22 had a little bit of a change of voice I've I've gone and dug up the Seventh Adventist Bible commentary and it makes a very similar observation, it says that Psalm 22 seems to have two parts, the first 21 verses consisting of the complaint and the prayer of the sufferer and that's, we've been seeing that, the bull's encompassing me and why have you forsaken me and you know, um, I they they're staring and gloating over me, and they're dividing up my my garments. But then, from verse twenty-two to the end, the the SDA commentary describes that second part of the psalm as a as the thanksgiving after deliverance. And if you look at it, I think that there is something in there because, well, I'm sure there is. The commentary was written by scholars, and none of us are Hebrew scholars or Old Testament experts. We're we're honest readers of the psalm. But in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And then verse 24 comes in that context of the thanksgiving after deliverance. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him. It felt like it. It felt like I, I said, why have you forsaken me? I felt utterly, utterly despised. But now I say, God did not despise me. I see things differently, and and so, what changes? What what makes it that point? That's that's a tough one. Why does it take so long? Uh, you know, I sort of see what you're saying. The the why have you forsaken me, God? Is is the experience of Jesus in Gethsemane and on the cross, and the you know God has not despised. He's not hidden his face from me. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. That is the experience made sense after the resurrection and in reflection. Hey, this thing, Jesus on the cross, this had meaning, this had value. This wasn't God's rejection of the despised. It was God's ultimate acceptance of them. It was his ultimate deliverance. I was crying out and I thought that I was the outlier to the story of Exodus, but actually what was happening was the ultimate fulfillment of the story of Exodus of God's delivering a people afflicted. And and so that's a perspective shift. You you see that we talked about the, you know, the disciples on the road who didn't have had not yet had that shift of viewpoint. And then when they got the shift of viewpoint, doesn't it say they ran straight back? They just retraced their entire day's journey, that night basically? It it's a it's an utterly transforming Experience to have that viewpoint shifted. And you, you do see that a little bit here in Psalm 22.
0: It's the concept is said here uh, that we might... Uh, it's almost as if the psalmist is recommending to us an expectation that we could just be just around the corner from an, an Emmaus Road experience. There might, uh, there might be something that could happen tomorrow that will change... In retrospect, the meaning of what's happening today, mm. um, and and that now is it? Ken, is it you uh, said a quote to me in the past about? Uh, we inhabit a mystery.
1: Mm. It's uh, it's a quote from a Eugene Peterson book uh, called Christ Plays in Ten Thousand Places, the title of which is taken from the last line of a Jared uh, Manley Hopkins poem. Uh, that's a long mm. um, <laughs> introduction, but the statement is, uh, we inhabit a mystery. We ought not pretend to know too much. I like that. Mm. And And I think one of the things that, uh, following along a similar uh, theme. I wonder whether the change in the uh, psalmist's perspective is an encounter with God, uh, an experience of God. And falling back to the discussion that we had previously about you know, the unwillingness of the Pharisees to see things through a different lens and indeed the mistaken views of the disciples... And it it seemed to me that sometimes we're we're very unwilling to change our thinking about God, um, even when we're faced uh, directly with his presence. And yet, it is uh, his presence uh, that is the gospel. Uh, It's his presence that does enable us to have that change of perspective. And, And indeed, it's his presence that gives meaning to the Beatitudes Um, where it's the poor in spirit who have the kingdom of heaven, those who mourn who are comforted, uh, the meek that inherit the earth, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness who have fulfilled, the merciful who have shown mercy, and the peacemakers who are the sons of God, and the persecuted because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We see, you can see a similar sort of thinking, uh, a similar sort of process uh, that's occurring in the Beatitudes mm. to what's occurring in Psalm twenty-two.
0: Uh, the trouble is with something like the Beatitudes is they're repeated so often that they become less confrontational than than they would be to, at, when heard at a first hearing. But uh, Christ was full of full of things like this, and I've mentioned this before because it's one of my favourite stories. But in as much as it's relevant, when Christ says to his disciples about Lazarus that the sickness won't end in death. Either either Christ was naive, or forgetful, or he was deliberately trying to perplex his disciples.
1: And in a most, um, in a most, in an extreme way, using death, yes. death to teach of a, of a friend to teach them. I mean, one and, can think. And this
0: <laughs> this speaks back to Lewis's comment too about the closest to God bearing the hardest burden. The strangers Christ healed straight away, but his close friend. Was put through this harrowing experience, and then he turns. There's the passage elsewhere in when it's the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And in the parable, Christ says to the Pharisees, "Do you know what? If I raise someone from the dead, it wouldn't make any difference to you. Your minds are like concrete, all mixed up and set hard." Christ didn't use those words. That was as a, um, <laughs> a paraphrase. Um, but yeah, there's there's a real risk in there, isn't there? There's a risk for all of us that aspire to a life of faith. And I think think the faith of the psalmist, uh, the psalmist does not presume to know all the answers. He trusts that in the end, things will be done right. Mm. And that through the highs and the lows, when he experiences these highs and lows, and we've looked at some other psalms where he experiences a different sort of low, where he's just plain vindictive about people who are annoying him or hurting him. Whatever is passing through his mind, he is referring this to God. Uh, maybe that's the meaning of the verb to psalm
1: I like that meaning uh, I'm referring yeah. this to you God um, indeed much of the prayers that I pray uh, and grant me the mind and capacity and the strength to pray more often, but they're often simply referring things to god that mm. that's my current experience of prayer
2: yeah I had a very a very vivid experience it's it's not so much a part of my of my prayer experience now but as a as a teenager it was because i was i was really captivated by this idea of what's the point of praying mm. god knows my thoughts before i think them you know god knows me better than anyone what i'm i am thinking my thoughts it's, i mean praying up the front when you or praying in a communal experience when it's spoken word there's there's so much layers of value but Individual prayer, where you're praying, not even speaking the words out loud, but you're praying them in the head. You know, I reached the point where I sort of thought, why even try and form coherent sentences here? I'm not speaking to anyone. I'm not communicating to anyone except God, who's understanding my thoughts. Why, why feel constrained by this burden of language and everything? So, what I would do, I had the, for for a little while, I had this really strong feeling where prayer was an experience where I would just deliberately and and focus in this bizarre sort of mental picture. On sort of opening my thoughts, and I would have, it was as if I was saying many things at once. In a way, you can't do with your mouth. I'd I'd have these multiple streams of of ideas and thoughts running in my head all at once, and I would be sort of uh, confused almost in, in my in my what am I actually praying about? And then and I would sort of take comfort and think I don't I don't need to be too stressed about this. God God understands me. And and it was very much this kind of, here, I, I, I never used this phrase, but now that you've said it, I realise it was a good description that I could have used, referring these things to God.
0: Well, Paul refers to a, a, an experience very much like that, doesn't he, when he says that the Holy Spirit interprets our inarticulate cries, our groaning.
1: I, I think it's the thoughts that he interprets the thoughts that we can't express. But I think it's it, it's it's the Holy Spirit, or with groans that we, uh, it's the Holy Spirit who groans. I think uh, in a way that is it. Yes, I th- I think it is, um, uh, because uh, because in ways that we don't understand. Um, so, but fortunately, God does, and I I think like I understand why you might want to convey that experience or that description as being somewhat bizarre but I really don't think it is. I think it's a very honest description of how we finite beings constrained as we are by language encounter uh, the divine. Um, there has to be uh, an element of at least mystery and even uh, a perplexing um uh, bizarreness too, to, to that, and I, I don't think that makes it any less real, the experience, and any less valuable.
2: Yeah, it, for me, I mean, as I say, it's not it's not the main mental picture that I that I have retained into into adulthood, but there was a, a period of months where it was it was my vivid picture of what was happening, and what I think was really good about it is it's so easy for prayer to become formulaic and for prayer to become us trying to control God. Mm. And what what I was picturing in my mind in that kind of experience that I've described was very much a deliberate experience of, hey, God, I am wanting in prayer to come close to your infiniteness rather than feel like I am in my finiteness trying to dictate to you what needs to happen or control you or box you in. And I think those are are good things. One of the things that's really fascinated me, and maybe it was that particular mental picture of of my personal prayer that, that gave me this sense. I have always been frustrated by prayer circle type events where a group of Christians will sit together and they will say, are there any prayer requests? go for half an hour where people and sometimes it's even written on a whiteboard or notes are taken these are the things that we wish to pray about so then someone will stand up and say right now we let's pray and then it's as if at that point we've we've had the the shopping planning list meeting. Is written we've written up the agenda so now what we do is we uh, we open the 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 meeting and we proceed in our in our slightly awkward and often cliché laden formulaic prayers to try and, and pray about those things that we have just spent potentially half an hour exploring as a community and opening our hearts on. And what I've always wished would happen is that someone would dramatically upend that expectation and would say, well, are there any prayer requests? We'd talk for half an hour and then someone would simply say,
1: amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some irony
0: in the fact that
1: you raise that uh, and, uh... I I, I just reflect on the fact that uh, the prayer that I prayed at the start of our discussion this evening was simply that uh, this discussion would be the prayer. So, <laughs> uh,
3: look, it's real interesting that you raise that communal prayer thing. Are, are you aware? Is anybody aware at all of how Quakers pray? No. My my family has a Quaker background. And mum is big into family history, so she's done all the research. Um, so they they do do it in a communal form, but they they do it in silence. Ah. <laughs> they sit together in silence,
1: and uh, I rather like it. I do understand that there is an opportunity where uh, the, one of the uh, members of the community thinks that uh, expressing the prayer would have more benefit than the silence for them to pray it. Um, uh, But that's a pretty weighty burden to uh, take on. (laughs) I I think what I like about it
3: is there's no expectation that you will say anything. If you want to sit in silence the whole time and listen to others talk, people will share only if they feel a burden to. And it is perfectly acceptable
0: for everyone to be, to be silent is—is is this the genius behind the psalmist? Obviously, we have many authors, but but the voice, the role of the psalmist, the third P—we have the priest, the prophet, and the psalmist—is—is is it the ability to voice, to place into words something we've all felt, but we've we've never quite been able to get out there, or never felt we've had the words, or by personality may not be inclined to be the sort of person to lead in public prayer, and there's all sorts of personalities contribute all sorts of things to the church psalm 22 it specifically mentions was set to a tune at least at the sadamite bible it says it's a psalm of david to the tune of the dough of the morning and it's for the director of music this was sung in a public setting and could you perhaps imagine some people sitting there and listening to the psalm and thinking yes that is exactly the sort of week i've had this week i didn't i couldn't quite have said it as well as that but that was just what I wanted to say, although I didn't realise it until, it until I heard those words. I mean, this is, this is one of the things that we really crave. One of the favourite comedians that I enjoy watching on, on YouTube, all, all his acts just describe really everyday things. It's just a description of the things we all do. One of his comedy routines was about the, the herbs and spices arguing with each other in the cupboard about who's the ne- most neglected. And they're all they're all envious of salt and pepper sitting on the over, uh, on the on the table because they're you know salt and pepper are so arrogant they assume they'll be wanted and they sit out there ready and there's here's his poor old paprika sitting up there in the cupboard it's been there for three years still got the plastic wrapper on its head and he's been praying every day that it'll be goulash day and it's never goulash day and halfway through halfway through their discussion they're all arguing about who's who's the most neglected. And there's a voice from the back of the cupboard, and someone interrupts and says, oh, "Excuse me, I just want to stop all this nonsense. I've been here longer than any of you." And the herbs say, "Well, who is it?" And uh, he says, Ah, oh, oh, John West Salmon. Um, <laughs> and here's my, here's my wife, Tin Tuna. We've been here longer than all of you put put together." And the whole comedy routine that the only thing that makes it funny is the recognition. That everyone has, you know, one of the one of the one of these herb spice packets has never been used. And he says, They bought me when they were in their last house, and they brought me to this house when they moved house, and they've still not used me. And it's, yeah. it's we when you hear it, you say, Oh, that's me, yeah, and that's that's what makes it funny. Is that the value of this huge plethora of emotional content? a diversity of life experience that's expressed in the Psalms, is it that we can pick up the Psalms and at different times in our experience, the different Psalms speak to us in, in different ways and with different levels of imminence. But, you know, is, is that what the Psalmist can do for us? We can look at it and we say, hey, that's, that's me. I think that
3: the Psalms are very relatable, human, everyday, in the best possible way writings um, that do exactly what you do. But I also very much like the idea of them as as prayers and even as examples of prayer. Lachlan, you mentioned pondering the question, why do we pray if God knows everything we're going to say already? And I think the Psalms give us a little bit of an answer to that. When you consider especially how many of them begin with somebody expressing their pain and end With praising God, prayer is something that God gives us to to help us, to benefit us. It's not something God needs. He may like it, but we are being very arrogant if we assume God needs us to pray. Uh, It's for our benefit and comfort. And I think the Psalms do a really good job of
1: illustrating that as well. And interesting that they uh, do that with music, as um, Cam pointed out. Psalm 22. And I thought, well, what's a what's a hymn that might be like Psalm 22? And the one that popped into my head was this, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And I mean, most would know the story it's been told in many churches um, about the, uh, the composer of that hymn uh, losing his family, or his, at least his daughters. Um, in a, a ship that sank in the Atlantic and uh, and writing uh, the hymn about when the sea, sorrows like sea billows roll uh, and yet uh, I sing it as well with my soul and it seems to me maybe there's a little bit of that uh, in Psalm 22 uh, My God, my God, why have you uh, forsaken me? Uh, and yet, future generations will proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying he has done it.
0: And also in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is not this is not just a a bad day. The valley of the shadow of death is is a fairly extreme description. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff they comfort me.
1: The the valley of the shadow of death might be thought to be a uh, Only a little better than being forsaken by God, uh, which is the way that Psalm twenty-two starts. Psalm thirty-one finishes with uh, saying that He has done it. I just wondered what it was. Um, What is the it? Oh, Psalm twenty-two. Yeah, sorry, Psalm twenty-two. What is the it? And I wondered whether or not it had any relationship to the final words i think they were of jesus on the cross which is it is finished um, uh, anyway there you are yes. which was declared to a people yet unborn at
0: the time of the psalms mm. Mm. Hmm. well that's that's very interesting we need to wrap up There's there's a lot more in these Psalms. we've we've dwelt a bit more on psalm 22 i think that's partly just it's a longer psalm, and Psalm 23 is, is well known to us. D- can we comfortably endorse both these psalms? And are they really as contradictory as we thought they were?
1: I, I wouldn't dare to
3: not endorse a psalm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I think if you read them, uh, they are not as contradictory as their tone at first might Uh, indicate uh, because both have the valley of the shadow of death or the abandonment of god um, and uh, both have uh, the dwelling in the house of the lord um, and the deliverance uh, that he provides
0: perhaps we need to have a testimonial time at church where where people were allowed or encouraged or, or felt safe to just get up and say what had actually happened in the last week i've been praying for this and nothing's happened yet. You know, wouldn't it be nice to to incorporate that part of, of religious life into our church services?
2: And there's an idea that occurs to me very vividly flowing out of that, Cam. This this Psalm 22 specifically addressed to a choir master. If it's a choir master, it's a communal experience, at least within a choir, presumably sung potentially as a performance or as part of a liturgy or as part of some, some other event to an even larger group of people that may not be in the choir. There is tremendous community-building opportunities when you have that kind of raw openness, honesty, and safety. And, and I think that would, be, that would certainly be beneficial. It would be part of God's deliverance to a great many people to have access to that kind of depth of, of community. And I think it's a challenge to us because we often speak of our, our church communities, using that word, um, and, and other places that we turn to, even amongst social groups and, and friends, seeking that kind of genuine and and powerful communal connection, togetherness, and, and perhaps psalming, Together, to to use our, our newly coined verb of this episode, is one of the most powerful ways to build community. Hmm.
1: Uh, which means that perhaps we ought rename our prayer meetings psalm meetings. I like I that. Like it.
3: That's a good idea.
0: We need to introduce the verb to psalm, you know, more prominently. And uh, th- this idea of this idea of not trying to beautify our thoughts before we present them with God. But just acknowledging, you know, what's in our minds, what's in our lives, is a valuable one. Now, uh, this discussion has been split across two episodes, and uh, there's so much more in the Psalms. There's obviously so so many other topics we could talk about. Uh, we we're coming up very soon to our thirteenth episode. And inasmuch as the quarterly follows a 13-week cycle, we might reevaluate evaluate after our 13th episode whether to continue with the psalms or, or perhaps take it a, a different topic. In either case, I do have a suggestion for the next psalm to discuss. And it's a psalm of uh, straight praise. We, we've looked at a spectrum of psalms. There's there's some that we haven't looked at. I mean, one that we've overlooked is the longest psalm, which we have no chance of fitting into one episode. But the great celebration of God's law, which is a theme in the psalms that we've not dwelt on. But we haven't done so much um, a psalm that's just pure euphoric praise. And Psalm twenty four is a beauty, and I I have heard it put to song um, by a group called the Sons of Korah, and uh. Mm. I really like it. Uh, so I'd perhaps nominate Psalm 24 as our discussion for next week. I'm happy to run with it. Well, it sounds good sounds to me. Good. Oh, and then there's too many other psalms. I'm just looking at Psalm 25. I don't know if we'll be able to stop doing the psalms. We might We might be stuck on it until we've done them all. Anyway, we'd be anxious to hear from all our listeners, of course. If, if you've enjoyed our discussion, we're glad that you're here with us. And you have a, a preference for what you would like to come Obviously, uh, the coronavirus restrictions are easing. We we very much enjoy our discussions. Uh, We hope that they are stimulating and and useful uh, to you. Don't forget that you can send us comments at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And if you have any particular preference about uh, what you would like for the future episodes in this podcast series, then please let us know. And we're so glad that you could join us this week.